you have to hear me the second time, I give you my condolences and my apology. You're part of the staff that has to do that two times. I said earlier, and I'll say it again, I do not like um, introductions. And Lisa insisted that there has to be an introduction. And um, so it is what it is. Um, if you want to know the truth, all that's true. But the best truth in the world is I'm only a sinner saved by grace. And I am the man who needed Jesus more than anybody when he went to the cross. So that's who I am, okay? I spoke at Boston at Calvary Chapel a few weeks ago to a men's retreat up there in New Hampshire. And a young man confessed to me, he said, he said, you know, Jack, he said, I told all my friends at work I was going to go to a retreat and hear a guy speak that did more than 38 years in prison. And only to find out that you were a prison chaplain. And, um, but, I, but I did tell him, you didn't lie. I mean, this is the truth. Because I said, you met a guy who his whole lifetime deserved the sentence of hell if it wasn't for Christ. So that's the truth. And, and so I thank God for the privilege of being here uh, this morning. Um, Jim Maxim is a, is a dear friend of mine. He's a brother that's encouraged me uh, down through the years. I don't know if Jim's in the building today, but I just want to mention his name this morning. He didn't ask me to do that. Uh, Lisa I've known in Coatesville, and uh, we're getting to know each other more and more because of our son's ministry. Uh, there at the Providence Church. This morning, uh, I'm not sure if they stayed for the second service. Is Heinrich still here? Heinrich and Sassan, did they leave? Still here? Where are you at, Heinrich? Right there. Stand up, Heinrich and Sassan. They're on our staff. This is really the in-house chaplain for Chester County Prison and his dear wife, Heinrich and Sassan. They came, they came to us from Cape Town, South Africa, not Cape Town, from the West Cape, in South Africa many years ago, 10 years ago, they came with two young sons with really uh, leaving um, the, the travesties in many ways and the sadness of that country and some of the good and some of the bad that was there. They came uh, through the ministry of Dave Wilkerson to New York City to Times Square Church to lead a ministry back in Africa for him. And um, things went uh, well there, uh, but the finances of the nation changed and everything. And and in God's providence, Heinrich ended up uh, coming down into Chester County. Uh, they were staying actually with a friend. Am I okay? This thing fell off again. Hold on. Can I have technical help? Or do I just leave it hang? I'll leave it hang. But they came to Chester County, lived with uh, friends that were down the street. And here, here's the way God works. I'm wearing on my lapel pin a, a ministry called County Corrections Gospel Mission. It was started by the former assistant chief of Los Angeles police named Bob Vernon. Bob is 85 now and uh, suffering with stroke and a uh, very ill man. I'll just talk while he's doing this. <laughs> and uh, thank you, Shannon. And, um, but Heinrich had heard of me through point man friends in South Africa. I mean, that's unheard of. And, and, of course, Heinrich was in New York, and then he moved to some friends' houses in Chester County. And Christmas Eve, about 11 years ago, I'm preaching in a small Baptist church outside of Coatesville just for a Christmas Eve service. And, of course, the South Africans said, when you go to America, you've got to meet Jack Kranz. Well, who would have ever guessed that I'm in the pulpit and in my church that night sitting there is, is Heinrich Botus from South Africa? I mean, God put us together in a way that could never have been dreamed and God provided for them through immigration. They didn't 
come here anyway, but the way they could come and 10 years of just waiting on God for um, attorneys and piles and piles of immigration papers and, and to have them here serving with us in Chester County is a real blessing to me and Cezanne uh, really uh, staffs uh, getting people into jail um, the legal way. Um, everybody goes to jail legally, I guess. Maybe not, maybe not. Um, but she helps you get in there if you need to go in and visit. Um, but Heinrich is the pastor to our prisoners there. I still am the head chaplain, but believe me, he's the hero that does the bulk of the work. And so I'm really happy to have Heinrich and Cezanne here this morning. Um, let's just bow together. Father, I pray for your help right now. I, I know that um, I have a job to do, and that is to represent your word. And so everything I say, Lord, really, I, I guess, can eclipse what you have already said. And maybe if it was the best thing, we just listen to your word read for another 30 minutes and go home. That would be the best. So, Lord, I pray that what I say in the context of this republic, this democracy, America, 2020 almost, Lord, we need you. I pray that we're desperate for you and that somehow, Lord, you'll visit our hearts in wisdom in these few moments we have together. I pray for your help as I try in a few moments to just speak something that's timely for all of us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm not here this morning to impress you at all. I sat down with Pastor Gaglione um, a few weeks ago. I've met him before, and he's been a gracious man to me, and I just met with him, and, and I know he couldn't add anybody else to the missionary role or anything like that, and I told him about needs we had at the jail for books for prisoners, and he said maybe down the road uh, Calvary Chapel can help us with some of our literature. And so he said, Jack, by the way, what are you doing on the 29th? I said, probably sitting under my son's preaching in Coatesville. He said, well, why don't you come and cover my pulpit on the 29th? I said, I'd be honored to. And so that's why I'm here, and um, I do consider it an honor. I consider it also a responsibility. Again, I usually don't preach with a whole lot of notes, but because of the time and because I want to stay on point, I want to make sure that um, I say the things that I feel are necessary to be said this morning. Um, I'm going to start with a whispering tone here, or maybe I can stay at that. I want to tell a quick story that I didn't tell at the first service. Um, it's hard to preach two sermons alike. I read a book many, many years ago when I was a social work student, and I still have a copy at home. I've probably bought it a couple times just to rehearse it and refresh it. But the title of the book always caught my eye. It was written, I think, in the late 60s by a uh, psychiatrist named Carl Menninger. God's pulpit's not a real place to maybe quote Carl Menninger, but he wrote a book that was interesting to me because, number one, he was very involved with issues of crime and punishment. As a matter of fact, I think he may have written a book on crime and punishment. He was very engaged in the criminal justice system. He was one of those old-fashioned psychiatrists, secular psychiatrists who thought everybody had a problem because of something somebody did to them. You know, it was always a, we are where we are because somebody damaged us in the past. Um, and I think his view changed over time because he wrote this book called Whatever Became of Sin. The last time I even heard the word sin on TV in any way, in any media, which just a couple weeks ago was some lady's cosmetic commercial. And if you use this kind of lotion, you've, you've sinned. 
That was about the first time I've heard that ugly word sin in the media for a long time. But he asked the great question, whatever became of sin? And what he was saying was basically this in the book as a secular psychiatrist, that he was beginning to believe that man knew something about his own condition and that we weren't always able to blame everybody for who we are, that we may have a condition that we all have. And, and he opens the book with a tremendous illustration of a preacher who's in a major metropolitan street corner, and that preacher is just preaching his heart out as loud as he can, but the sermon is one you would have loved because it's only one word, and he was done his sermon. But he kept saying it, one word with an exclamation. I won't yell it, but he was yelling it and pointing at people as they were coming towards him. And more people would come because they wanted, what's this guy doing? And his message was called guilty. That was the message, exclamation, guilty. And people would hear the message and begin to go back on their heels and go the other direction. And Menninger, not me, not a seminary professor somewhere, but Menninger said at the end of that illustration, he said, you know, everybody that heard that sermon with the word guilty, went away from the preacher asking the same question among themselves. Everybody was asking themselves this one question. How did the preacher know? And what Menninger was basically saying is we have a sin problem. Mine was so bad it took Jesus to the cross. That's how far he went to tell me I was a sinner and that he loved me. He bled and died and rose again. And I like to say now, he not only bled and died and was buried and rose again, but he ascended into heaven. He's been given a name above every name, but at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. As I come before you this morning, I, I promise Lisa, and I, I want to do this, I want to mention our, our message today in the context of a, of a scripture verse that's going to be perhaps maybe a, a key verse for the women's ministry here this year. Maybe not. I'm not trying to put it on you. But I think Lisa said there was some agreement among maybe some of the women that this might be a theme for some of the women's groups in the church. And it was from the context of Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 17. And I'd like to read that chapter to you, at least those 17 verses, because it, it's important. So I'm going to read it slowly, but listen to it carefully, because I'll read up to chapter 1 of Isaiah, verse 17. Verse 17 will be in the context of this chapter. I will say that when Isaiah began to prophesy, and he had a long prophesaical ministry, he came on the scene after a tremendous king of Israel named Uzziah. Israel had been through some of its most blessed times, but it had turned away from God. It was turning more and more away from God, to idol worship, to every kind of known sin to man. And quite frankly, we kind of find ourselves in that same boat here in this republic right now. Maybe you disagree, but I'll be very pointed with you today. I'm not trying to in any way injure my relationship with you, but I would say that we have turned some doctrines of demons into federal laws. Our nation has really pressed the issue of the holiness of God. Matter of fact, the holiness of God almost becomes a non-issue. A non 
In Isaiah chapter 1, let's just listen to the word of the Lord up to verse 17, which is that theme verse for the women. But I want you to hear it in context. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner, the ass his master's crib, but Israel does not know my people, does not consider. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord and they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? You revolt more and more, your whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Its wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, foreigners devour it in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Verse 9, very important verse. Except the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant. We would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bulls, of lambs, or he goats. When you come to appear before me, who required this at your hand to tread in my courts? Bring no more vain oblation. Incense is an abomination unto me. Your new moons and your Sabbaths, your calling of assemblies, I can't bear it. It is sin, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are trouble unto me. I am weary of bearing them. And when you spread your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. When you make prayers, many of them, I will not hear you. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. Put away the evil of your doing from before my eyes and cease to do evil. And here's the verse. Many of the women, may perhaps in this church, would like to embrace in the new year. Learn to do well. Seek justice, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, and plead for the widow. And of course, there's so much more in that chapter. But the context of the 17th verse falls into that powerful, powerful um, heart cry of the Lord himself. God speaks the word O to his people. God agonizes to his people. And he talks openly and clearly as about their sin and about their worship. This morning, I was very careful in the first service to um, just speak this as, as kindly as I could because it may not apply here at all. 
And I want to say this before I say anything else. First of all, Pastor Bob's been so welcoming. Pastor uh, Bob Banks called me on the phone. Real, real, real sweet man. And, and I, I enjoyed the worship this morning. I've heard nothing but great things about Calvary Chapel Delco. I want you to know that. Matter of fact, as a chaplain just over the hill, not too far away, I've always said, Lord, someday, maybe someday, Calvary Chapel Delco might, might come more and more into Chester County and maybe weep with us about some of the things that we see there. I say the same things about a lot of churches. Church of the Savior in Wayne, I love that church. I'm still waiting for them to respond. But you know, God says to his people in general, to his people that he loves. I know this is the Old Testament. I know this is Isaiah's prophecy. I know it's Israel. But we still have the same God. God hasn't changed. He's holy. He's still a God that was always approached through the blood of the lamb. He was always approached through the redeeming lamb. I don't know of anybody that was ever saved that wasn't saved because of the mercy of God and God's display of that mercy through the blood of an innocent lamb or a dove. Abel offered up a more excellent sacrifice. It was always the blood that redeemed. But it wasn't bulls and goats. It was God looking forward to that day when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But God says here to his people, Many 800 years before Christ, he says to them, this is powerful. If I was saying it, I'd want you to throw me off the pulpit today. But God said it. He said it to Israel. He says, when you gather for worship and you sing your songs and raise your hands in prayer, in so many words, and his words are pretty rifling, he so much as says, it makes me sick in my stomach. I don't want you to do that. I hate your songs, I hate your feast days, and your quiet, solemn assemblies, I despise them. And when you offer up the lamb on the altar, it offends me. In so many words, if you put it into modern context, could you imagine the Lord today through a modern Isaiah saying to his people, not to you, to another church, when you have communion and you celebrate my blood and my body, I hate it. And when your choir sang, it really offended me. And your prayer meetings, they're the worst. I don't even hear you. That's what he says in Isaiah. If you keep reading, you'll find that one of the reasons that was was because God said there's no such thing as real worship without real ministry. There's not real worship without loving and carrying out that great grace that we found at Calvary in the lives of those around us. The wise man Solomon said in Proverbs 24, 11, and 12, in so many words he said this. He says, when you see someone ready to perish and you do nothing to deliver them, knowing that your own soul is kept by God, don't you know that you will have to give an account of that? That's Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. And I know I'm speaking to the choir in many ways. I know this is a ministry church. 
I know you're engaged in prisons. I know you're engaged in addiction ministry. I know you're engaged in ministering the word of God around the world. I know that. You're planting a church in Chester. You're doing wonderful things. But can we talk as family a minute about America, about our nation? We're living in a very dangerous moment. As we enter the year 2020, just days away, almost hours away. That'll be a big year for me if the Lord gives me another day. The Bible says, number your days, not your years. November the 21st in 2020, I'll reach my 70th birthday. Pretty neat hallmark. 70 years old. And I look at my life, and I've been working in jail since I was 23 years old. It's been the context of where God put me. But God broke my heart even as a high school kid. Mom died in my senior year of high school. She was sick with cancer in eighth grade in the Gordon Junior High School. I remember leaving Gordon one day on a rainy day in November. My dad's saying, Mom has breast cancer. I was an eighth grader. She died in my senior year. But I had a wonderful mom. To have my mom to age 40, which is what she was for the first 16 years of my life, I'll tell you what, I'd take mom for 16 years than most moms for eternity. Wonderful woman of God. And dad always prayed with us. I still like Old Spice. Not wearing it today, but I'm cheap to buy a gift for. But I'll tell you what, I wear old, when I get Old Spice, I like it because it smells like my dad. And he'd pray with me before I'd go to school in the morning. After mom died, he'd take our hands, my brother and I, and we'd pray walk right across the street to high school because that was Coatesville High School then, right across the street from my house. See, I grew up as a nine-year-old right there in Coatesville, right there watching all that stuff going on in downtown Coatesville. And boy, for a little boy nine growing up in Coatesville, what a great place to grow up. But I was leaving a home where Dad prayed with me. My hand would smell like Old Spice when i go to school. I know my dad's love, but yet I would be around so many people so much different than me. And I'd wrestle with them, and I'd fight with them, and I'd grow up with them. But by the time I reached my senior year of high school, I was watching. Even in junior high, I was watching my classmates arrested and, and going into high school, watching their lives be broken, and by the age of 20, see them go into a Christless eternity. I knew when I left high school I wanted to be a... I wanted to work with troubled people. That's what I wanted to do. In those days, if you're old enough to remember, and maybe you don't even remember, but back in those days, there was a guy named Clyde Naramore. He was the modern uh, Dr. Dobson. But Clyde Naramore was a Christian clinical psychiatrist, psychologist, and I said, I want to work with troubled people, work with psychology and help people that are hurting. And, but God put me in prison instead, and, and, and that's where I've worked. And but what a place to work. It's been wonderful working in jail. I've learned so much from prisoners. And one thing I've learned, I'm the worst one I've ever met. When it comes to standing before the Lord, who am I? You say, Jack, you didn't burn your father to death like I won't say a name. You didn't pull that baby out of your wife's womb like you didn't strangle your 12-year-old daughter while she slept. No, I didn't do any of that. But my sin is so grave in the presence of a holy God. I deserve hell. 
That's what the Bible says, and I believe it. Not because he doesn't love me, but because he does love me, and he gave himself for me. And he's holy. He's holy. Don't take that word out of your vocabulary in the year 2020. A lot of Christians have. God is holy. And that's why we're losing the battle out there. On so many levels, we're losing it because we've given up the holiness of God. We love his love, but we never stand for his holiness. That's why we're passing laws that are doctrines of demons. We have forgotten the holiness of God. It breaks my heart. Just this last week, a great example, bad example, but an example of what's going on in America. And I'm not knocking anybody, but I mean, the world's watching, and I'm not knocking. I, I respect Franklin Graham. I'm going to say that right ahead. But you're in a world today where you got a Franklin Graham fighting Christianity today, and, and, and everybody's fighting. We think Congress is divided. What are the next couple of weeks going to bring in the House of Representatives in America and in the Senate? Where are we going to be by the next presidential election? And what does the world look at you and I as, as Christians, as those who are true followers of Jesus Christ? What is it about us that makes us worth listening to? Why should somebody listen to me? Unless I, myself, am a repenter. I'd never want to go to jail without an understanding of my own sin before God. I looked up a verse this morning that I thought was important for the context of, of this message. This clock went real fast in this service for me. But I want to read, I want to read a passage. It's important because we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and, and all of that, and that's what God accused Israel of. And we can kind of throw a whole bunch of sins into those words and lose the context of what I'm saying. But listen to what God says to Ezekiel about Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel uh, chapter 16, 48, 49, and 50. It's a great passage on Sodom. Ezekiel says, as I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom, thy sister, God calls Sodom Israel's sister because of their behavior. As I live, saith the Lord, Sodom, thy sister, has not done she nor her daughters as you have done, Israel, with your daughters. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. So God is relating Israel to Sodom. Here was their sin. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness were in her, and in her daughters, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor or the needy. They were haughty, and they committed abominations before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. <laughs> so just to clarify the term Sodom and Gomorrah, because we always throw one or two sins into that list. God gives a whole list of sins in Sodom which was pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, and she did not strengthen the hand of the poor or the needy. They were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, God says, I took them away. We're living in a time 
where for me, and every time I get a new birthday, particularly now with the 70th year, a new election, I find myself always on election day or near election day, getting on my face before the Lord and praying for our nation. And I wanted to sit on Arlington Hill the day that Obama was, uh, President Obama was inaugurated the second time, 2009. I wanted to pray for him. I wanted to remember him from Arlington Hill. Instead, I prayed from my living room as I watched him being inaugurated. But I prayed. And then in November 16th, the election of Mr. Trump or Mrs. Clinton, we didn't know which way it was going to go. I called one of the greatest dear men I know. He's 85 years old, Richard Owen Roberts from out at Wheaton. I called him on the phone. He wrote a great book called uh, Repentance, the First Word of the Gospel. And I called Pastor Roberts on the phone and I said, Pastor, what verse is on your heart today as we approach the election of our president? This is 2016. I wasn't asking him who he was for. I said, what's on your heart today? And that godly old man basically said to me, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 12, he read this to me, or verse 9, except the Lord of hosts has left us a very small remnant we will be like Sodom and we will be like Gomorrah. All he was saying is, no matter who the president is, if God's people don't get it together, the nation's done. And maybe you call that fanaticism if you want to say it, but I believe as a 70-year-old, I'm not that old, but I've been around enough to say, from where I sit, I see this nation in great travail. And the only thing I can say to you this morning is we need a church, his church, his blood-bought church, to be known as a people of repentance and brokenness before God. Some verses that are real dear to me, and I have no time to really preach them this morning, but I would commend them to you. Psalm 18, verse 16, which is one of David's great confessions where he says, my enemies are too strong for me. Psalm 18, 16. Basically, David confessing the fact that without the help of God, he was absolutely ruined. I would say that about me this morning and about my nation. Psalm 51, 17, God says, I am the high and lofty one. I dwell in the high and lofty place and in the heart of the contrite ones. From that passage, Isaiah 57, 15, God dwells one of two places, either in the high and lofty place where he does dwell or in the heart of the contrite ones. No other place. What if this church was not a contrite people? God says in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, I look to the man who is poor and contrite and who trembles at my word. I said to the first service today, wouldn't it be something if on the front marquee of Calvary Chapel in flashing lights out there on Route 202 and Route 1 were these words, come visit Calvary Chapel. We are poor, contrite, and we tremble at God's word. Or to put it in a nutshell, we are repenters. One of the greatest reasons we're losing this nation is to hear the voice of repentance from anywhere is missing. The more powerful our message, the more we have to speak it 
with repentance. As I said to someone this morning, what length did Jesus go to to tell me I was a sinner? And how did he say it? I remember a young girl, Don Markle. She grew up without a mother, lost a brother in Vietnam, grew up very poor around the corner from our church near Modena, Pennsylvania. And Don one day gave me a little sign, a little beautiful picture for my birthday. And it, all it said was, God says, how much do I love you? Remember we used to do that with our kids? How much does daddy love you? We do it with our grandkids. How much does pa love you? And then we say, I love you this much. What she gave me was a picture of Jesus saying that on a cross. I love you that much. That's how he dealt with my sin. It's the greatest message in all the world. The greatest repenter I have ever seen in my whole history. And in a sense, he was forced to repent. But he repented, and he lived a life of a repenter, and that was Paul himself. He was one of those fortunate people. One of those fortunate people who, in running away from God, and I mean Saul of Tarsus was running away from God. He was an enemy of the people of God. He was an enemy of Jesus Christ. And what did God do to Saul? He pulled back a bow with an arrow in it, and he loved Saul so much, he shot him. And Saul went down on his knees, and he said, I need you. And God made him, I think, the greatest repenter I've ever seen. You want to know what a repenter looks like? Look at Paul. His life was taught and caught up in the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That would be refreshing in America today. We're so pulled to the right and to the left. If anybody knows the need of justice and the heartaches inside of a prison, I can tell you about it. I've buried the kids. I've buried the dads. I remember one afternoon on a Sunday, I went to a young lady named Patrice, who now walks with the Lord and is married in, in her right mind. But for many, many years of her life, she was locked up. And one Sunday afternoon, I remember having to call her up from her cell and Patrice came in, and she was crying, and she said, I know my grandmom died. That's who raised her. I know grandmom died. I said, no, grandmom didn't die. Patrice, your daddy did. He just shot his neck off. Didn't say it like that. My urgent cry in 2020, almost a 70-year-old, after 48 years in prison, would be this. And I think it's biblically centered. And that is this, that we be a people who by the grace and mercy of God are repenters to the most deepest sense that we could ever understand it. Those who are stewards of the mystery of Christ, it is required of us that we be found faithful. When the apostle Paul stood before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 and verse 20, he was telling Agrippa what his ministry really was in a couple minutes, and he basically said this, I, I preach that men should, should turn from sin to God and do works fitting repentance. If you ask the American people to define a repentant church today, what would they say? 
What's a repenter look like? I think a repenter looks like someone who understands the cross work of Christ in their life, has a burden for rescuing those who are least and lost around them. I really believe that God wants to somehow do a work yet in this nation, but he'll never do it without a people who are willing to be broken before him. A verse I wake up to every day, and it's becoming more and more real in my life, is Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2, and it goes something like this. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of years. Revive. But in your wrath, remember mercy. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of years, revive. But in your wrath, remember mercy. And when I quote that, Habakkuk 3.2, here's what I always add to it. Where it says, in your wrath, remember mercy. In my mind, I put a little parenthesis there. Starting with me. Starting with me. If you're here this morning and you don't think you need the mercy of God, you say, Jack, I've already received the mercy of God. Yes, you have if you know him as Lord and Savior. But the more we understand what Christ did for us, for me, I'm asking him to revive his work. How do I dare ask God to revive his work unless I say, in your wrath, Lord, against me, remember mercy. If ever America needed a church that was defined as people of repentance and brokenness before God, it is now. Beware. 2020 may be like a year we've never seen in our lifetime. I know this. I'm not wringing my hands over who the next president's going to be, and we have reason maybe to do that. But my heart, I pray, is crushed and broken before God over my own condition so that for such a time as this, if God chooses to do anything yet in this nation, he might find a place to do it in a broken heart of a repentant man or woman. Imagine if this church was known as the church of repenters. King Agrippa would probably say, what does that look like? You answer that in 2020. What does it look like if you're a repenter? Maybe you have to repent this morning about what it looks like when you go home with your wife and your children today. Is daddy a repenter? Is daddy a repenter? Is mom a repenter? My prayer for this church, 2020 will be your best year because God inhabits you because you're poor, you're contrite, and you tremble at his work.